Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Always Already podcast. This is B, Emily, and John. And today we're going to be talking about uh, Roberto Esposito's work, Bios, Biopolitics, and Philosophy. And specifically, we read the chapters, the introduction. We read chapter three, Biopower and Biopotentiality, and chapter five, The Philosophy of Bios. Before we get going, we should thank uh, listener Craig for requesting that we talk about this book in what list. This it, super hard book. This, <laughs> this may be late in coming, Craig. This is, uh, I mean, this, this could be a four-hour episode. Could be. You'll know, audience, when you download this, how long it is, but right now, it could be four hours. There's a lot to say about There's this book. There's a lot book. to say. But like, thanks, Craig, indeed. Um, and as always, you can request books that we read or texts that we talk about or whatever to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com and send your advice questions there. And Alana, we might have, we haven't decided yet, a new segment that goes with my Tumblr friend from Canada. <laughs> so suspense. You have to mm-hmm. listen to the end to see that. Um, and while I'm, I'm asking favors and self-promoting, uh, you should, if you like the podcast, go to iTunes and rate it and leave a review of the podcast, because then that way we get higher in the iTunes search terms. Do it. Or when they search for us. So you should do there, that. Although there aren't that many critical theory podcasts. That's true, <laughs> but you'd be surprised. There are some ones that, like, if we get a little more famous, we can start beef with. All right. So, like, I, but let's that's, make this happen. Requires the listeners to critical review us. Rivalries. There's only so many times we can log in and write under mm-hmm. pseudonyms on the <laughs> iTunes store. Critical theory agonism. That's what, that's there what we go. Yeah. Yeah. And then you can, like, write something about it. I would love to do that. All right. So... Esposito talk, new segment, fun stuff coming after this summary. In this book, Bios, Biopolitics, and Philosophy, Roberto Esposito takes up the biopolitical question of why politics of life always risks being reversed into a work of death. Esposito builds off of Michel Foucault's concept of biopower, which Foucault argues is a technology that manages populations. So if disciplinary power is about training bodies, biopower is about managing the births, deaths, reproduction, and illnesses of a population. So biopolitics then refers to the regime of technologies, institutions, and populations that characterize politics and political life starting around the 18th century. Uh, An obvious example of biopolitics carried out in its ultimate extreme is Nazism. In this book, uh, Esposito thinks through what can be learned about biopolitics if we think of Nazism not simply as a historical moment of non-philosophy, but as a moment of dangerous philosophy. Uh, So his project here then is to kind of recast modernity as always already in the realm of the biopolitical and to extend the line of biopolitics uh, further back into philosophy in order to develop an affirmative biopolitics, or in other words, to develop a politics of life that doesn't necessarily reverse into a work of death. Um, So the knot that ties biopolitics to modernity is the concept of immunization. Esposito argues that modernity casts individual self-preservation as the presupposition of all other political categories, from sovereignty to liberty. Um, So thus, the protection of life, or the securing of immunity for the individual from the risk posed by the community, undergirds politics for Esposito in a way that helps to understand how Nazism um, represents the ultimate culmination of the biopolitical reversal of life into death. Uh, Esposito dedicates all of chapter three 
entitled Biopower and Biopotentiality, to a discussion of Nietzsche, which allows him to read immunization, biopolitics, and modernity as knotted together. Uh, in this chapter, he advances a reading of Nietzsche that confronts the places in his work where scholars disagree about how to read seemingly contradictory aspects of his work or how to maybe recuperate parts in favor of uh, one interpretation or another. Esposito argues that the two threads do, don't actually contradict, but rather illustrate a kind of paradox of biopolitics generally, where the demands of the immunity paradigm yield both degeneration, or death, and simultaneously generation, or a new politics of life. Um, what this new politics of life is, he turns to in the final chapter, chapter five, the philosophy of bios. Uh, in this chapter, Esposito walks through the three immunitary dispositifs of Nazism to think about what potential philosophy for deconstructing, um, what potential philosophy has for or offers uh, for reconstructing these dispositifs in respect to their deadly results under Nazism or for converting their self-negating potential. Um, the first paradigm he deals with is the paradigm of the flesh. In Nazism, this immunitary paradigm manifested as a double enclosure of the body, or in other words, as the chaining of the subject into his own body and as the incorporation of such a body in the extensive body of the German community. Um, this last incorporation is uh, radically destructive, obviously it destroys everything held not to be a part of it. Um, Esposito turns to Merleau-Ponty as a means of overturning the radically destructive potential of the framing of the individual as coextensive with the community uh, under Nazism. Uh, and so the Demand here on philosophy is then to rethink political identification as not inherently residing in particular kinds of bodies or inscribed in particular kinds of flesh. Uh, Esposito argues that flesh should be thought as a being that is both singular and communal, generic and specific, undifferentiated and different. Uh, the second dispositif that Esposito wants to deconstruct is that of birth. Uh, which, taken to its deadliest extreme under Nazism, manifested as a suppression of birth or um, antinatalism produced by negative eugenics and the elimination en masse of pregnant mothers. Um, here, Esposito unpacks the historical relationship between the concepts of birth and nation and looks to Arendt and Simondon for the conversion of the self-negating potential here. Um, so Esposito's challenge to philosophy then is that it should recast birth such that it's no longer a phenomenon of life. Um, thus, to take life is to take birth, but to recast uh, birth as life is a phenomenon of birth, so in, in uh, overturning that relationship. Or in other words, that birth and life are inextricable and superimposed at the same time. The third dispositif is the norm of life which taken to its deadly extreme in Nazism manifests as the absolute normativ normativization of all life. Uh, here Esposito turns to Spinoza to break the biopolitical relationship between law and life, where when law produces the norm of life, um, it regulates its absoluteness via death. Uh, Spinoza then, on Esposito's view, is necessary for his deployment um, because Spinoza deploys uh, the connection between the realms of norm and nature or of law and life and situates them as part of a single dimension in continuous becoming. So the Spinozan norm then is the principle of unlimited equivalence for every single form of life. The norm doesn't accord to a particular form of life. Um, Esposito concludes this chapter with Deleuze and argues that this biojuridical node that ties together life and norm 
ought to be untied, not to separate the parts, but such that each recognizes one in the other, such that any living thing needs to be thought in the unity of life, and such that no part of it can be destroyed in favor of another. Hope you enjoy our discussion. So uh, we'll start with my favorite question to ask on this podcast, which is, um, what is Esposito's project with BIOS? Um, and John? Yes. <laughs> you, you the spot. Yeah, I, I stopped did. It's, earlier you stopped you... earlier when I suggested that the project failed at what it was doing, but maybe I have time <laughs> for self-revision. Oh, see, I was scoffing at something else he Oh, okay. So, but okay. I scoffed at that, too. <clears throat> okay. I mean, it seems to me a bit like the process, the, the project in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, friends, but it's to kind of trace different lineages of biopolitics and especially to kind of pose the question of whether an affirmative biopolitics is possible, right? One that might, you know, meet our ethical or political or whatever standards, um, given the fact that biopolitics has so many genealogies and instantiations and systematizations of violence and death and all of that, right? With the you know, Nazis probably being the paradigmatic example for Esposito. So that seems to me kind of the main project and that kind of a related encased within that project is to think about the kind of philosophical and theoretical lineages of bios or biopolitics that don't usually get discussed, right? Because usually he says, you know, we start with Foucault, but there's, you know, we could go back to you and to talk about Hobbes. He mm-hmm. has this whole chapter on Nietzsche. He says there's even like a little bit of Kant stuff you could talk about that he wants to think about in terms of biopolitics. So that's how I would render the project. Right. And I get the sense that his um, motivation for locating biopolitics, you know, before or not even temporally, but just like not in Foucault, right, um, is intended to sort of, like, address this paradox, right, that he thinks that um, Foucault was never able to answer the question, right, why does a politics of life always risk being reversed into a work of death? Yeah. So I, I get the sense that the motivation for doing this lineage, right, is is in an attempt to sort of think about um, how to answer that question in such a way that, uh, that enables the um, affirmative biopolitics, right? right? So that it doesn't just sort of always revert to um, life is death as the only kind of answer. Yeah, you know, well, okay, so I interpreted the project a little differently from maybe both of you, which is to say, yeah, sure, he's drawing a, a genealogy here, which he's trying to sort of predate as Foucault, although I would bracket that off and suggest that even Foucault in his early writings, well before, you know, he starts, you know, the very encouraging, you know, conversation about biopolitics, um, you know, tracing it through Hobbes already in Society Must Be Defended and other areas in which he was already outlining this kind of thought within Nietzsche itself um, and the and especially within his his own lectures on Nietzsche and the will to know. So on the one hand, it seemed, you know, that the project was slightly derivative. But on the other hand, maybe, you know, if Esposito is trying to, this is what I took him at, is attempting to put biopolitics within the sphere of the Western philosophical canon and place it in such a way as to actually be taken seriously by otherwise, you know, the trenchant, you know, camp of analytic philosophers. That was what I sort of started to take him at. Um, Wait, can you say that? Yeah, what, what, I don't get the analytic philosophy part. Well, like I, wanna... I mean, I'm fine if you want to rag on analytic philosophy, oh, but, sure, I, I mean... but I don't understand why he's oh. doing that. Well, how, you know, for instance, like Hobbes and Descartes and others that take 
um, you know, at least in the analytic camp. That you can't put Hobbes and Descartes on the same plane. Oh, my God. Like, I, it's part of, like, I write about it in my dissertation, like, that's, that's not, you can't do that. Well, I, I, okay, that's a very, I that's, a very that's a very strange line to draw on the sand, but, uh, no, it's you know, a very, the rationalism in itself, rationalism oh. and the way that we frame reason and, and instrumentality is oftentimes in the analytic camp used to a specific end, but if you think through biopolitics as a way of weaving together right, discourses on bodies and taking reason as a means of suggesting that reason is being lodged in bodies and that um, and that these bodies are under control. I think that it's putting thinkers in the Western canon that otherwise are treated different, you know, completely differently in conversations that I think are productive, which on the one hand, I think Esposito does a really good job of, okay. and I would applaud him for Um but in many instances, and we can talk more about this, why am I always the, the naysayer and everything? So I have plenty um, of hate oh, to throw. Because okay. I feel like I'm, I'm the naysayer. Uh, which Don't is to worry, say that there's naysayers. lots of, like, there's lots of, you know, of derivative ways of things through, like, either it be Nietzsche or the way that he handles Heidegger um, and others. But it just seemed like the project of, of affirmative biopolitics wasn't fully met. I think that's probably where. Um, you scoffed earlier before we started recording, which is my suggestion. Yes, which is my suggestion that I don't know if there was a fully, if there was really a success here at developing a, an affirmative biopolitics. Yeah, and we can interrogate that further as definitely, and so. I think we will. But uh, I'm gonna bra- I'm gonna bracket like the total miscanonization of Descartes and Hobbes to agree with the rest of what most of the rest of what you said, B, because I think you're right that like he is kind of constructing a different and weird kind of archive of the Western philosophical tradition, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's not necessarily obvious to, like, draw the line from Hobbes to Nietzsche to Heidegger to Arendt to Simon Don, mm-hmm. right? And, like, that's a really interesting and line. And Merleau-Ponty. And Merleau-Ponty, yeah. of course, right? And, um, him as well. So, like, I think that's really productive. And I think that kind of fits in the way that you know, we were framing this project earlier, right? That it's, yeah. you know, it's through biopolitics that we can access that line, right? Which is, like, kind of situating him somewhat on a plane with Deleuze, and he ends the book with Deleuze, right? Because Deleuze, like, says he wants to trace what he calls the orphan line mm-hmm. of philosophy, right? Like, he wants to do the, you know, Spinoza, Nietzsche, Bergson line, as mm-hmm. opposed to more dominant modes of philosophy, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, one... So it doesn't surprise me, then that uh, Esposito is working with some of the same people and the method is somewhat similar in terms of its relation to the canon or to the tradition, um, and that he then ends up talking about Deleuze like, as the final uh, person that he's interested in in affirmative biopolitics. Yeah. What do you think is supposed to be sort of, or what's the um, kind of benefit of thinking of Nazism as not non-philosophy? What's, what are we supposed to learn from that. That was something I was kind of, I, I yeah. get that the, that Nazism is kind of the link in the chain in terms of thinking how, how biopolitics before and after Nazi biopolitics is still incarnations of biopolitical sort of, um, understandings of what life is and where it comes from. But I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to learn by rethinking Nazism as not non-philosophy. Well, okay. oh, no, go ahead. Well, so I was just thinking that couldn't we frame this alongside, you know, another trend, which is to say that whereas, like, what Nazism did was, um, you know, obviously, you know, horrendous in all capacities, but it, it took a, a way of thinking about life and transformed it, right? So it took thinking and thought 
and transformed it into a hideous sort of action that had a an absolute effect on the world in the most despicable of ways. Um, similarly to a kind of science that, um, and it, we would be you know remiss in calling Nazism a kind of science, but similar to a kind of science that produced you know the effects of say the atomic bomb, in which now the now that we have physical effects of thinking and thought. Now we have physical effects of the philosophy of the ways that atoms and such work. We have the physical effects of the ways that we, we start believing and thinking through what the state can do on bodies and how to protect the state's interests with bodies. And so it seems philosophy manifests that a certain kind of despicable philosophy, albeit, is manifest in, in Nazism. But you think Nazism, that he's arguing that Nazism is the first time this happens, that we there's actually like a historical... Um, or historical evidence or a moment where thought is actualized in this way. Yeah, let's go to page 10 in the introduction. So <clears throat> here Esposito writes, From this point of view, one can say that the Nazi experience represents the culmination of biopolitics, at least in that qualified expression of being absolutely indistinct from its reversal into thanatopolitics. Mm -hmm. But precisely for this reason, the catastrophe in which it is immersed constitutes the occasion for an apocal rethinking, I can't say that word right, apocal rethinking apocal. of a category that, far from disappearing, every day acquires more meaning. Mm, not only in the events I noted above, but also in the overall configuration of contemporary experience. And that's, that's the opening to thinking about affirmative biopolitics today. So I think this is a really interesting question, Emily, in kind of two ways. The first is kind of what you alluded at in your asking of the question, is that Nazis imposes this, like, discontinuity, so mm -hmm. that after it, you can only think of biopolitics with Nazism, uh -huh. right? Because, you know, in that quote he talks about it as the culmination of, you know, maybe even the dominant, like, line out uh -huh. of biopolitics. But there's this other level, and this is where I'm not sure that he's necessarily saying it's not non-philosophy, because he's a couple times clear in the fifth chapter that at least uh, kind of self-avowedly the Nazis are non-philosophers, I don't remember if he necessarily passes a judgment on it or not. Right. But I think what's more interesting for him is the fact that this is both then the, you know, the culmination, the, you know, the, the extreme outcome of a certain kind of biopolitics, and then at, thus at the same time, this moment in which biopolitics can and absolutely has to be totally reevaluated and rethought. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not the first time that uh, thought is actuated in to this extent, but it's the first time that biopolitics specifically is um, sort of materialized in this like visceral kind of way that then kind of puts a, puts a, a, a body or something. Yeah. A body biopolitics is a modern. The, oh, sorry. I don't know what I was saying. Well, no, like biopolitics within the modern age or biopolitics within a modern framework on such a massive scale and in such a massive way would probably, you could say, incurs that, you know, what as, like what I would be saying earlier, incurs that first instantiation of a lived philosophy that's no longer thinking itself as philosophy, but rather as life itself. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's no longer thinking. And I think that I'm glad that he brought a rent into this because... You know, it brings up more than just the human condition, 
right? Which I think that this is where I'm borrowing a lot of my own, you know, my own thinking, as it were, about what, um, you know, Esposito is doing here with, with Nazism as a philosophy, as a, as a kind of an activity of philosophy. Um, but to say that under the conditions of Nazism, there was no thinking, right? There was no thought. It was in, you, one was incapable of thought, right? Going back to the banality of evil, as it were, but that it's this sort of modern condition in which, um, you know, the Nazis were, and Nazism is that, is, is living thought, or at least living and act, and actuating a kind of philosophy about what they perceived as life in its relation to death and the strength of its own, you know, what it believed itself to be as like the protector of its own population. I don't know. It just seemed to me like that those things seem to be a very modern, you know, conceptualization. And if we, of like the modern age, if we were to say since, you know, the night, really the 1930s and 40s, I don't know, rather than modernity itself, which we can say from the 16th, you know, 17th century on. Yeah. If we've ever been modern. There's a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to mention that. Uh, <laughs> or or tomorrow I did that. Um, if we've ever been <laughs> <laughs> we should just use that in our regular day-to-day lives, just as non-sequiturs more often. I mean, and this is one of the interesting things that he tries to do. I'm not sure, at least not in the chapters that we read, he necessarily always does it, but another kind of part of his project is precisely this one of modernity, and to say that, like, to what extent are the very categories, and the, the political categories in particular, of modernity, like, always already biopolitical. He just always already allowed, so I yeah, like yeah. that. Um, and thus, like, the best Nazis are kind of a discontinuity, but also, again, this, like, ex- most extreme outcome of a line. And, like, if we can maybe be a little more specific here, um, again, back on page 10, when he's kind of providing an overview of the status um, of Nazism, and he writes, the Nazi regime brought the bio- biologization of politics to a point that had never been reached previously. Nazism treated the German people as an organic body that needed a radical cure, which consisted in the violent removal of a part that was already considered spiritually dead. Skip a couple sentences down. On the contrary, Nazism works within the logic in such a paroxysmal moment paroxysmal manner <laughs> is to turn the protective apparatus against its own body, which is precisely what happens in autoimmune diseases, right? So again, it's, you know, what happens at the logical extreme of this trend that is necessarily associated with modernity, if we've ever been modern, although he doesn't uh-huh. do the mature thing, mm-hmm. which leads, I think, to a perhaps interesting and productive discussion of Esposito and method, uh-huh. right? Because his methodology is like, you know, if I was going to be really cliche about it, and I'm fine being really cliche, uh, it's you know we, like when he just says you have, you know when you stare back at the abyss, when you stare at the abyss, it stares back at you. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Esposito is taking that to the logical extreme in terms of biopolitics because he says that only like once you confront biopolitics at its kind of culmination in Nazism, that's the only point at which you can then like open up a I would say like open up a line of flight to a more affirmative biopolitics, right? He talks a little bit about this at the very end of the conclusion, at the end of the introduction, Mm -hmm. like the last line, he says that you need to bring life in relation with biopolitics, not from the outside, right? So you can't construct an affirmative biopolitics from the outside, but you have to do it from within Nazism itself. And then there's another quote that I really liked of Wong Nee's, this regard, 
on page 157, if I can get there, uh, 157, where he writes, If we are to open the black box of biopolitics, we shouldn't limit ourselves to skirting Nazi semantics, or for that matter, confronting it from the outside. Something more is required, and it has to do with penetrating within it and overturning one by one its biothanatological principles. So that's, like, the method yeah. question Sorry, is really... Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of, I need to interrogate what you mean by method. Like, I mean, is, like, what, what precisely... I, yeah, that's here? a good, that's good. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of it in a very expansive category. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm also use that term because I was talking and emailing a bit uh, a couple days ago with listener Craig, who requested that we uh, read this, and Craig said that uh, he was talking see that this book was in the method section for his orals mm-hmm. i think he said so that's why i had the question of kind of method of method uh-huh. stuck in my mind so i was thinking about this and so i guess that's why i'm kind of interested in thinking of it you know we talked in some ways of a method in terms of his approach and construction and articulation of the canon right um you know putting all these philosophers on like a single plane or whatever again mm-hmm. to go to the delusian uh, a Guadari an analogy, mm-hmm. you know, but then there's another part of this method that says it's, you know, you do have to go confront like the abyss of biopolitics, right? And you need to follow Nietzsche to where Nietzsche is at, like his most racist and like biopolitical. You have to follow biopolitics to its culmination in Nazism. You have to go there and confront that if methodologically we're ever going to be able to like turn or like wrench biopolitics in an affirmative direction. Well, so, like, how, do you how, think that that, do you think that, like, that's a viable project? Do you think that's too risky? Do you think it's necessary? Like, what do you think about that, like, necessary. as the project? I think that that's an interesting way of framing it when we think about what he's doing with Heidegger, because he seems yes. to kind of be doing the opposite with Heidegger, right? Yes. He's like, he's like, let's take, let's, like, take Heidegger away from the abyss and think about the, what Great what's point. what's in him that, um, that marches you, you know, instead of over the edge, like away from the edge, mm-hmm. right? That like, um, which is not to say that that isn't his project, but maybe mm-hmm. like part of confronting the abyss is thinking about like what things we've already always already placed at the right. abyss, and then like right. how can we think about what the what um what we get from those things if we turn them around and like walk mm. them away or something. I'm, I'm not sure if that's... No, that's, that's, that's great. And there's another thing that I'm thinking about, and this I wrote down at a couple different times, where like the, there's a lot of danger in this project, mm-hmm. right? There's danger in like tracing out these lines of biopolitics, right? And so I was brought to, you know, the way that like Susan Buck Morris interprets Benjamin's I first the introduction or the preface or something to the work of art essay. And Susan Buck Morris says, and this is I think in her aesthetics and anesthetics piece, mm-hmm. that, you know, the question to ask of a philosophical endeavor is can this ever be useful for fascism? Mm-hmm. Right? And Esposito's arguing for a different sort of kind of political ethical method. Mm-hmm. Because he's like saying, No, you have to trace the thing that is like that intimately connected like, to that is, fascism. Yes, or that, is, that is like like, you know, inextricably and, like, forever bound to fascism to do the Mm non-fascism, right? So, like, those, to me, strike me as two different but overlapping in weird ways kind of methodological slash political slash philosophical slash ethical endeavors. Mm -hmm. Well, in that sense, I think he's he's not not doing the Latour thing, right? Oh, the Latour thing. That he's kind of, like, you know, we think of... um, 
biopolitics as being a kind of like outcome of modernity, right? But actually the terms for its ultimate culmination in Nazism were set, you know, they're they're uniquely modern terms. In fact, they mm-hmm. they're they're although there's in also like to, Plato genealogies too. That that's true. Interested in one of that's the chapters true. we did yeah. read. Yeah, but um, but he makes a distinction between the Greeks and um mo- modernity's kind of conceptualization of um what life consists in, right? And then this is where he talks about the immunitary paradigm, right? That yes. like. In modernity, life is just about self-preservation, and that's a kind of emptied category for him in comparison to the Greeks, right? He thinks that the Greeks kind of had it more, um, more had a more robust understanding of what life was, because it wasn't just, like, simply the survival of the organism, but it's about the kind of survival of the community or the survival of the soul or the survival of something that, like, has more is. substance to it right. than just, like, the survival of, ex- of singular existence. Yeah. Um, so I still think he's kind of saying that they're, they're modern terms that set up the culmination of, of biopolitics in yeah. Nazism. And then that's why we have to confront like mm. what, which par- aspects of modernity set, you know, kind of like not justify, but um, provide the framework for linking like Nazism to to philosophy. Well, there's a, well, isn't there a degree in which we have to always go back to Foucault on some level? Oh, the, you know, to which we always have to go back to Foucault, especially in the order of things, right, where he says, um, it wasn't until man recognized his own finitude within the, you know, the realm of history, it wasn't until history entered into <clears throat> the ways in which we thought of ourselves, man qua man, um, in which we could then start thinking ourselves through as um, finite beings with a, a beginning and an end in which <clears throat> Um, you know, as, you know, as because if we go back to Hobbes, because we legitimate certain kinds of state behaviors, because we fear violent death on some level, then we legitimate certain kinds of practices that are found only within modernity, Mm -hmm. um, within the framing of modernity as the switch between the 18th to the 19th century. And then it's really its culmination between the, the 19th and the 20th century for Foucault, where biology and the natural sciences are taken over with, you know, a certain kind of state function where, you know, mankind is a part of, we think of mankind as a part of nature, but nature can be controlled. Um, it becomes a, you know, that, that very much is a part of a vocabulary that's existed for quite some time, but it doesn't become really an extant kind of grammar for the way we can control things until, you know, finitude enters the picture, until human history enters the picture of, of regular discourse. That's great. Do you know, I, I mean, another like project or text to throw on top of him, in addition to like the Latour questions or the Foucault questions, are the ways that Deleuze and Guattari are interested in tracing, like, state philosophy. Yeah, um, You know, in both the Nomad Plateau of a Thousand Plateaus, <sighs> but also in, <laughs> also in, like, almost the entirety. It's like a sub-theme that's line that runs throughout and anti-Oedipus as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that'd be another text to throw on top of. But because B, you mentioned the... Uh, the extent to which Esposito and Foucault are wrapped up in one another. And I do think it'd be interesting to read something by B. Altman about, like, the... About, by B. Altman and Emily Crandall about the, like, Esposito, uh, Latour, Foucault, modernity article, mm-hmm. right? I think that should happen. Ooh. But because you... How we Write have raised... I shall specter, do it! <laughs> we have raised the specter of Michel. Um, <laughs> let's turn maybe to his... Desposito's discussion of Nietzsche, which 
I have a feeling I adored. And I keep saying I have a lot to hate on Esposito for, and I really want to promise that I am like, this is the thing about the Esposito book. Like, there was so much that was really amazing in here, but there's a ton that I was just, like, utterly infuriated by. But let's go to the Nietzsche part next. Uh, Both of you have qualms or skepticisms about his reading of Nietzsche. So Should we start with Aisha? My qualm is less... I mean, it's less a qualm or a skepticism and more just a question, because it's... um, you know, I didn't have time in preparing for this podcast to go back and look at the text of Nietzsche's oh, that he's looking at. Oh, come on, Emily. I read but, all of Nietzsche's... <laughs> we went back, I know, we went back to the Twilight of the Times. But, but <laughs> he has actually been reading Nietzsche very recently, I know, for other purposes. So right. I... Would I... My question was not, like, a question to Esposito so much as a question to B, who has recently been, <laughs> reading, had been reading Nietzsche, that, like, is... is what What is different about Esposito's interpretation of Nietzsche from Foucault's. And I I think um, may, my sense was maybe that it, it just is that Foucault doesn't locate biopolitics in Nietzsche. Um, but I don't know. I think he probably intended something more than that, right? And I'm mm-hmm. not sure what that intention was necessarily. And or whether you think it was successful. Well, I think that Nietzsche, like Foucault felt like Nietzsche authorized him to write what he wrote. I mean, there's so many elements of The Twilight of the Idols and elsewhere that Nietzsche basically anticipates so much that Foucault writes, but also, in essence, kind of, you know, legitimates a lot of what Foucault writes. He talks about one should study the effects of education and normalization on the student. Oh, discipline and punish. One, you know, should write in the ways that Esposito is outlining here, you know, so much of what... Um, is written, you know, in Twilight of the Idols, is taken from Foucault and his and his lecture on Foucault is sort of its own kind of, you know, how do we understand the interrelationship between knowledge and truth? Um, for Foucault, he's more interested in the question of knowledge and truth and the ways that it's performed, and then of course how knowledge is then predicated on, you know, relations of of power, but relations of um, of very specific agents within society, um, and it felt. For me, Esposito was doing a kind of derivative work because Connolly deals with something very similar to this in his book on identity and difference and talks about the ways in which community identity and then how difference plays out through Nietzschean texts and post-Nietzschean thinkers, Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, which includes far more feminist authors than, you know, Esposito does. Um, But we can, like, we can bracket that off. We can bracket that off. But to say that what ends up... Right, but what ends up being, you know, what ends up here is this kind of, like... How does Nietzsche fit within the biopolitical terrain? That's great. But, you know, the extent to which it is original or the extent to which this reading comes off as original seems to be it, it is very much and very much indebted to a kind of Foucaultian and, and Connellian way of reading Nietzsche on the left um, and, and the ways that I think on many levels... Um, you know, give, I don't know, I wasn't able to read some of the footnotes, but like hopefully giving credit where credit was due. No, there's no comment. Uh, okay. Credit where credit's due in the ways that Nietzsche has been understood in this capacity, um, you know, as early as the nineties. Yeah. So I think the reading of Nietzsche is actually really, really original. Okay. I mean, I think it's, I, but here's the thing. I think that it's possible for something to be derivative or I would maybe use a less uh, negatively connotated word, right? But to be, like, taking up... I think that Esposito takes up Nietzsche on the same, like, plane of imminence. On a, no, on a plane of imminence that is 
intersecting or uh, some fancier word than intersecting of the plane that Foucault or Connolly wants to take Nietzsche up on Mm -hmm. because Foucault and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know Connolly better than I, right? They're not doing it in the register of biopolitics. And given that Esposito wants to make this grander project of, like, here is a philosophical lineage of philosophers of biopolitics, right? That is an entirely new plane. And then to put Nietzsche on there, you know, which, which probably does, and I think that the text needs greater connections between that plane for Nietzsche and the planes of Nietzsche that you, that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. but I think that the very move to do that is itself actually really original. Well, I think that if we think of Nietzsche as Esposito's project of reading Nietzsche as being, here he is, biopolitical, front and center, let's just do it, um, that's great. Uh, but, you know, Connolly was, wasn't bringing Nietzsche out as a biopolitical thinker, but thinking of Nietzsche through the lens of biopolitics already. Okay. Um, so, and Connolly's projects sure. have oftentimes taken up these kinds of, like, biopolitics, I mean, and is always indebted to, always already, but always indebted to a certain degree of, like, Foucauldian and Derridean sure. thinking. So. Okay. But, um, yes, but. But bringing Nietzsche to the front and center, bringing him and putting him in place within, like, uh, you know, kind of biocentrality, as it were. Um, you know, great, that's awesome. And I think in that sense, yes, it is original. Right. So did you that, say biocentrality? He did. It did. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I, that's like, it doesn't yeah. mean anything. Okay. <laughs> I, well, I, I just, I was just like riffing off of bios as like right. philosophy. So yeah, no, I see what you're saying. So then the, then the question becomes like, what is, what do we get or what work does it uniquely do or what do we get uniquely from putting Nietzsche on the biopolitical plane. And I'll kind of contribute one thing that I think is actually really um, impressive about this reading of Nietzsche, even compared compared to Foucault's reading of Nietzsche, is that I think that Esposito, more than almost anyone else, is able to deal with the multivalence of Nietzsche, right? right? Like, like, and this gets back to the way, the way I was talking about, like, Esposito's method or something, mm-hmm. that Esposito has zero qualms. I was kind From of... From confronting the dangerous exactly. parts. Because I, yeah. I was kind of wondering, when he started when he started to go into Nietzsche, I have, like, several notes to myself, like, all right, well, are you going to be what able to yeah. keep the tension? Are you, like, going to cop out and kind of just, like throw off the potentially very dangerous parts of Nietzsche. But no, he actually goes into the heart of the racist Nietzsche, of the negatively, like, thanato-political Nietzsche, Mm -hmm. um, to come out with a more affirmative vision of Nietzsche. So I think this uh, he's not the only person to ever, like, hold both ends of that, but I think he does it uniquely, um, uniquely generatively, uniquely well, Maybe I just read Nietzsche as the supreme ironist. I don't see... Nietzsche always is as this like negative like for instance he says a sick but person always, is a parasite is, right? a sick person is a pir- uh, is a parasite on society once he has reached a certain state and, and indecent no uh, is indecent to live any longer etc cetera, etc cetera. I feel like quotes like that are oftentimes taken out of a context in which Nietzsche is writing as a you know as a supreme ironist right I'm borrowing from Rorty on this so I sure. apologize but like <laughs> as a su- so, but as a supreme ironist and all future references right, and all Rorty future, must I know must stop so but you think that like everything he says in that tone is all not not sincere or I not motivated by um, a, a real kind of 
disdain for sickness and... No, I think on, on many levels, like, there's a disdain for the ways in which, you know, like, especially, he, we call him anti-democratic, but he's looking at liberal democracy as being, you know, as being problematic. And, like, the quote from Twilight of the Idols is here, is to die proudly when it is no longer possible to live proudly. Death of one's own free choice, death at the proper time, with a clear head and joyfulness consummated in the midst of children and witnesses, so that an actual love-taking is possible while he who is living is still there. Leave-taking. Love-taking. <laughs> Same thing. Um, he from, loves freedom I know. So from, from love, I do. From love of life, one ought to desire to die freely, consciously, not accidentally, not suddenly overtaken. Right? Which is, stands in, in distinct contradiction to a Nietzschean quote that says, a sick person is a parasite on society. Unless, yes. unless you think that sickness is an infringement on freedom or consciousness. But he never did, I don't think that he explicitly suggests that, that there's an infringement on freedom. In the Nietzsche or Esposito? Here, uh, Nietzsche. Okay. Um, and w- in which the case he's trying to say what we need to do is kill off the parasite, but rather what constitute, you know, if we read it as someone, let's say, what, what yeah. Nietzsche is doing. What, what Nietzsche is doing. person who inhibits freedom and like. Well, no, a sick person is a parasite in society. What if he's reading this as a like or writing this through the lens of how liberal Democrats or others would otherwise have been writing? Or right. if he's writing as a satirist, which is oftentimes okay, but, he was. Okay, but here's the thing. Then why? And like, look, I'm with you on the ultimate like outcome of Nietzsche, but there are a couple of problems. One is that it's hard to say we must take all the things we don't like in Nietzsche as ironical or satirist. But then the beautiful quote you read is not at least a little ironic. Right. I think it's that's ironic. I'm not suggesting that's the only sincere. I'm suggesting that there are contradictions okay, that need okay, to be addressed okay, because of that. Good. Yeah. But you're not engaging the contradictions, and that's the thing that I think I Esposito does really... No, I, like, you're... He's... I think that you're Esposito... Sort of apolog- you're a little bit of a... I, th- I think... Here's the difference. Here's the difference, though, is that I think Esposito wouldn't deny you are reading, Mm -hmm. and say that we can mostly ascribe the things we don't like in Nietzsche to some sort of, like, Nietzsche is the best ironist. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with saying that. Mm -hmm. But I think what Esposito wants to say is we almost like we need to take what happens when we take Nietzsche at his word and go furthest into that is like the more sincere fanato political Nietzsche. Well, taking and him right. as a, at his word is the way that Nazis would have taken okay. him at his word. What exactly, is different though. than taking him at his word? Okay. Okay. Uh, well, then here's but here's the other part of what I was going to say is that I think that the Esposito move is also instrumentally kind of brilliant because there are so many, including people in our department here at the Grad Center who want, who do read Nietzsche as the theorist of the right, as a proto-fascist. And thus, I think it's really generative for Esposito to be like, fine, let's go with that and take that, and we'll mm-hmm. go into like the deepest like proto-Nazi parts of Nietzsche, mm-hmm. take them at their word, take that at its word, and then construct the affirmative line out of or articulated differently out of Nietzsche. So that, I think, is a really excellent project. One that's not, not, I don't think, mutually exclusive with 
the way you want to read those parts of the I don't think that I would have suggested or did even suggest that Esposito's reading of um, Nietzsche is incorrect or invalid. But right, rather, I think, think that many instances... That Foucault of, right, well, that it's the same reading that Foucault would have given. Where? But in similar, would have given. Would have That's given. That's different than did Well, give. I mean, if we think what? through what Nietzsche was doing in his lectures on Nietzsche, Foucault, okay. if we think through what Nietzsche was doing in Society Must Be Defended or in you know, The Birth of Biopolitics or, or State Territory... Which is interesting because Nietzsche's not in any but I mean, but three. his thought a little bit in like, the first I mean, you see, so, like, it's the ways in which, like, uh, so explicitly or implicitly, what I was suggesting was the way that Esposito is reading Nietzsche here, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Taking, so on the one hand, you can take Nietzsche at his dirtiest, right? If you want to read him <laughs> oh, at, I his, will. at his dirtiest and say, we can still be productive, but then I can come back and say, but we can also take him as being the supreme ironist, right? Is that both readings still produce, I think, similar kinds of outcomes. I don't think they provide similar outcomes. Well, it, so, it provides a similar outcome Because, like, I want multiplicitous readings of Nietzsche. Well, sure. And perhaps more than I want multiplicitous readings of anyone else mm-hmm. in the canon. Right? It's just but problematic. I don't think I find, they're the same. Uh, I just think it's problematic when we say, let's read Nietzsche when he's at his, you know, we can say when he's at his most dangerous, I suppose, when okay. he's coming across as his most polemical um, in ways in which his most contradictory... Um, but I, you know, I think dangerous is one, in yeah. one sense, could be good. Is more oh, productive totally than agree. saying like but at his darkest. My point is, you're, you're probably right about that. But my point is that the way out of saying contradictions in Nietzsche, that the way out that says read the most dangerous or the most thanato political parts of Nietzsche, ironically, and follow them as if they actually were Thanato political mm-hmm. are both viable means of thinking out of the tensions within Nietzsche sure. that don't, that, that may start from the same texts or the same lines in texts more accurately. Cause it's, we need to think aphoristically and all of that. Right. But I don't think they necessarily lead us to the same place, but I want both places. Mm-hmm. Well, in I, my don't, reading of I don't necessarily disagree, but I think Esposito and I would read Nietzsche's commentary in a similar way and come to similar conclusions based on that, like his style of reading and my style of reading is that what I read as a sick person is a parasite on society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, goes back to Nietzsche's abundance of life, then goes back to that right to die in a, you know, in a, you know, in a capacious manner in one's own choosing, right. in one's own free choice to die. But I, I think we have a harder time getting to, affirmative biopolitics, if mm-hmm. that's Esposito's project, out of your reading than we do I don't want him his. to do my reading. I want him to do his own okay. reading. That's, I, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't want him to do my reading. That's perfectly fine. Okay. I'm just that saying goes that against it, our last our 10 minutes of arguing. No, no, not at all. I think it was productive argument. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I'm super confused. All right. Then let's not <laughs> stop talking about Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, but but I, I, what I am going to like totally affirm what you're saying, B, is that where... What Esposito ends up with at the end of the chapter on Nietzsche mm-hmm. um, does sound kind of like straight William Connolly to me. <laughs> it's, about, it's about difference. It's about the proliferation of difference and so on and so forth. Yeah. And like, that's where I think, you know, I think it's, it, I still think there's something unique about moving that into the register of biopolitics, but like, I suppose one could say that it's derivative um, in the way it's taking up questions of identity difference, so on and so forth. Like I, you know, I wrote Connolly in my notes a couple different times. <laughs> in, like, pages 103 through 107 or so. See, I think that's what's so brilliant is, like, for instance, like, on 108, like, where I actually drew a star and wrote 
yes and underscored it was like in this sense Nietzsche the hyper individualist um, can say that the individual the one uh, undivided doesn't exist that it is contradicted from its coming into the world um, by the genetic principle according to which two are born from one and one from two right it is no coincidence that her birth procreation pregnancy constitute perhaps the most um, symbolically charged figure of the Nietzschean philosophy etc but I thought like that's great so you know in essence like the, the confusing part, I think, over the last 10-minute conversation was to say that I would have reached the same exact conclusion. I don't think that's the case. The though. same exact conclusion. Okay. Having read my own way of Nietzsche and then the way that Esposito read Nietzsche, we both came to the same exact conclusion, which when I read Twilight of the Idols, I thought to myself, there's nothing anti-democratic about this particular text. See, but that's the difference. I think Esposito says there is something that is potentially anti-democratic about the text. But to recuperate democracy, you have to confront exactly. that thing. Exactly. I don't, or to recuperate, yeah. or to recuperate, like, the proliferation of differences in, like, right. forces and wills to power. If that's Esposito's reading, then, you know, good for him. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we've kind of monopolized, like, in this... this B and I have talked about it sometimes. We, like, our repressed, like, hyper-normative masculinity uh-huh. comes out it, in the podcast. Yeah, it does. And I'm afraid that we've talked over Emily like four times in the That's past totally fine. I thought this book was really hard, so. Um, so, I mean, where do we want to go to next? Do Heidegger? we want to go trash at why his reading of Heidegger? Because I'm down for that. That sounds great to me, and we could also talk about the fact that there are no fucking feminist writers that are Oh, we're going to get there, too. Thought. We're okay. going to get there. That's something I, wanna, I would really yeah. like to talk about. Well, let's go there, then. Okay, let's go let's there. Let's go to Heidegger, Heidegger later. Yeah. He's less important anyway. Okay. Should we? He's low-hanging fruit. <laughs> um, oh! You know I love those. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I'm just saying, like, for argumentative purposes, I, oh, right? I just wanted to leave but it without also, a context. Like, but that's also, like, not out of the realm of you, what you might find here in this text, which is something that I thought was so, like, interesting. There's these two kind of threads happening. One is that, um, so there's, like, a lot of kind of innuendo, but not, uh, I don't think, like, self-aware innuendo. A lot of, like, a lot of language of, like, penetration and yeah. uh, this kind of, like, yeah, masculine sexual... Um, thing, but and that which I think is not self-aware, and right. then there's the self-aware or the purposeful kind of use of like birth as a central theme of understanding like the relationship between biopolitics and philosophy or yeah. um, life and death, and then there's the discussion. What? Oh, why? Um, all of my notes are, I'm are like notes this. Are great. My I know. notes are like ew. Why? Uh, <laughs> false. <laughs> these are the notes I write yeah. in the text. Yeah. Um, so there's the, the, those two kind of imageries working, like, not in tandem, right? They're just, like, yes. both there. And then Agreed. there's the uh, explicit claims that, like, some of this stuff has never been done before, which was, like, so infuriating. Are you going to read the most egregious one? I want to, yes. Do it. Uh, so on page 173 in chapter 5... Um, he's talking about sort of fraternity as the biological bond under democracy that joins uh, masculine lineage um, of the patriarchal uh, uh, original grant of government that democracy or liberal democratic theorists sort of overturn, right, in favor mm-hmm. of this, um, of the contract, right? And he says, um, now if it is true that democracy is often referred to the idea of brotherhood, that is because democracy, like all modern political concepts, rests on a naturalistic, ethnocentric, and androcentric framework that has never been fully interrogated. Never been fully interrogated. Oh my God, it's terrible. I mean, my undergrads could read this and be like, 
that's not true. I read Carol Pateman's book, and it's all about, I mean, the chapter, Contracting In, is precisely about fraternity. Inter- interrogating fraternity as the founding, the foundational sort of yes. a- aspect of democratic citizenship, right? Yes. And, like, I just think it's so, you know, such a glaring, glaring oversight, oversight to say that this has never been fully interrogated. And I know that, like, there's the whole, you can't read everything, and, like, we don't want to impose something that's not, um, that we wish he would have talked about onto him, but I think you, you cannot say, you cannot say that this question has never been fully interrogated. Uh, you just can't say that, because right. it has. <laughs> so there's there's that, and there's two other levels where this is totally fucked in, mm-hmm. his, in his work, right? So there's that level of, you just can't say something like that. There's, like, the kind of just, like, representational point about, like, maybe more women than just aren't, or maybe some people right. of color should be cited in this work. Yeah, I don't know. No. Crazy freaking idea, That'd right? So there's that point. But then there's the, the, the further point that, you know, actually this work would have benefited immensely from some kind of engagement with feminist theory, whether it's on, you know, the question of the androcentrism of central Western modern political categories, mm-hmm. whether it's, as you were pointing out to us, Emily, the, like, the interrogation of birth and, right. like, his abstraction of birth. Right. Um, and there's... Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking that I, I don't think it's, like, with outside the realm of what he's interested in exactly. to confront that abstraction, exactly. right? I mean, he's, like, t- he's tracing it. In, in its various abstractions, right? Like birth as, um, you know, birth as defining life or life as defining birth. I mean, in these relationships, it, it, all the philosophers he's citing here are talking about it in extremely abstract terms, right? It's like, yes. the, what is the abstract relationship between the act of birth and the, the fact of life or something mm-hmm. like that, right? But then, like, you can't, I just don't think you can talk about that as an abstraction without rooting it or grounding it in the material reality of birth and the sort of, like, power dynamics at work there in relationship to what's happening with power here, you know, and just to, like, mention, oh, by the way, I had this brilliant thought where democracy is actually fraternity. It's not, you know, it's not really free, you know, relationships between equal individuals is, like, so not original. That is so not original. That is, like, the entire (laughs) foundation of feminist political thought. I mean, yes. that is, like, it's, if you were going to teach a here. canon of feminist political theory, like, that is its yeah. substance. Haven goes in there. The Oaken book goes in there. The Brown, uh, Brown goes book in there. goes in there. I mean, Pitkin goes in there. Yeah. And, like, none of that is And here. those are just the famous ones, you know? And like, if we're going to stick on, like, the category of birth, I mean, there's any number of places you can go. Or you could go yeah. do Iris, Mary, and Young. Yeah. You could yeah, talk about course. Beauvoir. And, like, mm-hmm. he's interested in phenomenology mm-hmm. a little bit. Merleau-Ponty. You can even go to, like, Byerstone. Exactly. Total side note, I was just reading Hortense Spiller's critique of, like, Hortense the racism yeah. of the of uh, Firestone's book, which yeah. people should go read. Yeah. Um, I teach um, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe uh, in, in I just read that Women and Gender and Western Political Thought with it's Freud. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Their students are lucky. I love um, It's really good. And they always, it's always really hard for them because it's very psychoanalytic, yeah. but it helps them kind of ground, like... Because I just teach the lectures on femininity, which are yeah. kind of like, you can laugh that off. It's like, okay, Freud, sure. Like, women are like, mommy, why don't you have a penis? Like, I want one. You know, but like, you know, the way Hortense Spillers talks about the analytic, psychoanalytic sort of, yes. you know, um, uh, symbolic order and the relationship to like racism and femininity is so, so like brings to life the 
Freud and such. A, she's amazing. I know, but again, so, and like so total sidetrack. But no, it's not a sidetrack because like this is the kind of rich ground that Esposito can access, and right. he's even in the text. Right, he goes from talking about um, about the Nazis and birth and purity to Freud right. to then talk about right. our end and our category of yeah. birth. Right, so it's central to what he's trying to do, and it's not there's there. no materiality. And I think the elephant in the room with regard to this text is that other than the introduction in which he's actually talking about the lived experience of people who are either, you know, the, the right to die or the right sure. to, uh, under legal su- subjectivity, um, even, like, eliding to the greatest extent, uh, you know, the lived experience of the Holocaust by talking about, you know, the Holocaust in abstract philosophical ways does not get at lived experience. And, do. in fact, commits a kind of epistemic violence throughout the entire text is that what is present here is an abstraction and always right. an abstraction. Yeah. And that's what you were just saying, where dealing with the, like, the actual subjective standpoints of each of these individual moments of life as race, as sex, mm-hmm. as other, um, you know, would have been extraordinarily enriching, yes. but he can't do, I don't know, if, is it a question of like, can he do it with regard, right? Can he do it with regard to this project? Would it have been a, like, I'm not, I don't know, maybe elsewhere in the book he did. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe right. he could, he could have, maybe that's a, that's a claim that, um, but uh, we know from the footnotes that he doesn't necessarily engage with these feminist authors. And in fact, it bl- makes a blatant, you know, elision of them here in that statement. But it's like, there's no lived experience in this. It's all an abstraction of what the lived experience might look like. So I have two things to say about that. One, just in regard to like what the way that he treats Nazism, I, I would be hesitant to say that he does it throughout the whole book because we didn't actually read the chapter on Nazism, but I, I would imagine given these two chapters that it's, you're probably right about yeah. that, right? Um, which is something that bothered me. I was like, how, it seems weird to talk about the like the ultimate culmination of biopolitics as Nazism and not like talk about the like visceral yes. kind of grossness of it, right? That like if we're going to confront what's philosophically dangerous, like shouldn't we bring like what's actually shouldn't like our embodied experience like, encounter that exactly well, especially and, when he says politics and life have to be coextensive yeah. right and when he talks when he says like the body is politics and the politics is body i just don't know how you can talk about bodies how you can talk about birth how you can talk about um you, you know the coextensiveness of politics and life without talking about feminist philosophy it mm-hmm. just seems to me to be such a glaring oversight and i True. i yeah it's not the only right. place, And I also though. think that it's not not relevant to the project, right? Yes, that it, exactly. It isn't That's that the point. he's doing something different and that the abstraction is different mm-hmm. than talking mm-hmm. about the material reality of it. Like, when you think about the, you know, like, the materialist turn and new materialist feminisms yeah. or whatever, like, that's the whole point, mm-hmm. is that <laughs> these two things cannot be you know, analyzed as separate sort of philosophical categories Absolutely. that to get at the sort of philosophical, like, lower truths of life you have to you have to think through the material body he takes oh god i don't know he just and then he takes us like the foundation of the nation the story of moses and then freud's interpretation of that i don't know it's like because derrida gets into it in archive fever which is a brilliant book but like god i mean just like stop already okay well oh oh, we're not done saying stop already (laughs) so the other there are lots of really enraging aspects of it, but I want to read another thing. Okay. So, like, you know, this whole book is, I don't know, basically like Mbembe and Necropolitics, yeah. right? 
mm-hmm. right? Like, we could get, I don't know, I mean, 80% of, like, or more of this book from Mbembe between necropolitics and on the post-colony and, like, right. deprovincializing Europe. Right. You know, from, like, those three texts of Mbembe, we could get 80% of this. I don't know. So, you know, I was, I was, I was intrigued. So I went to the index, and I was like, oh, well, clearly there's some Mbembe going on in the footnotes that I must have missed. No. So there's one... One page and for entry on Mbembe. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not even an Esposito. It's in the introduction by the translator, uh, Timothy Campbell. That's also like an overview of Esposito's thought and like introducing him to an English speaking mm-hmm. audience, whatever. And the next to last, the 112th footnote in the introduction by Campbell about Esposito says, oh yeah, by the way, quote, C.F. Ashil Mbembe's discussion of the individual as opposed to the person in discussions of African societies. Then there's a quote from Mbembe and on the post-colony. And then this is the last line that really got me. I was so, so mad. My thanks to Adam Sitza for pointing out the deep connections between Esposito and Mbembe. And then I was just like infuriated that there is no, there's like, this book is full, it's saturated with necropolitics in that discussion. And like, I understand, so this text was published in Italian in 2004, right? And then we get it at the English translation is 2008. But, like, the Mbembe book was published in English in 2001. Like, there's, I doubt that, like, he couldn't have accessed Mbembe to, like, do this book. Yeah, and it wasn't as if, like, because this is a continuation of two other books previous that clearly should have been dealing, I mean, Communitas and Immunitas, I think, that should have been, you know, having, it should have been in conversation with Mbembe. So it just seems... Yeah, it seems very odd. Can I be only a deep connection? Yeah, that was I was so merely deep. So there, so those are the two most egregious aspects of it. But there were a bunch of other connections where, like, and part of it is like you can't write a six hundred page book, and I realized that. But as Emily was saying about the engagement with feminist thought, like when these concerns of these others are are centrally are like at the heart of what your project is. Just totally ignoring them is a gigantic problem on a number of levels. Right. And if you think you're doing something different, like, you should acknowledge that and say that, right? Like, this, I'm I'm not taking up this because I, I just, I can't. I don't know, never been fully interrogated. Yeah. It, that's so there are there are there are four other areas where I'm mad oh, yeah. at where I'm mad at Esposito for not engaging at all. Mm-hmm. And then there's one where I like can more understand why he's not doing it, but I'm still mad at Can, can I do it really quickly? Yeah, I just had a question about the Membe yeah. thing. I'm I'm wondering if maybe um a sort of reluctance has to do with actually how the West kind of views Nazism as a particularly mm. like violent, egregious phenomena, and without thinking about like colonial history, yeah, like maybe a there's point. a there, it's a it's like a kind of I don't know imperialist or colonialist yeah. text in that regard that it like yeah. doesn't think through like colonialism or, or slavery as mm-hmm. also a, a a biopolitical sort of yep. phenomena or event, and that maybe that those two things ought to be, like, thought in relation to one another. Brilliant. And, like, that means that the critique that Stoller makes of Foucault when it comes to coloniality, like, it should extend to what Esposito mm-hmm. is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so really quickly, because then we, cause we have to wrap up. We have other stuff to talk about, too. But other areas where, like, I think he badly needed some intervention or conversation or at least footnotes to say that, like, this is what these people are doing and I'm doing something different. One, disability studies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two, critical animal studies. Three, 
Donna Haraway or a cyborg and post-humanist discourse yeah. is. Four, affect. And they're like, when he's talking about the flesh, like, all I can think of is affect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and I'm less, I'm less care about this because, like, people do it or whatever. But also, like, the body without organs would have been interesting to hear more about from yeah. the Liz and Guattari. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get maybe to, okay. Do we, well, we need to, like, keep it short, but we, how about we each get one minute on him and Heidi? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> You can have my minute. Okay, B, you have two minutes on Heidegger. Okay. On Esposito and Heidegger. I think the listeners already know my stance on Heidegger. Although I have, Very like... Very clear. Uh, although I have, like, I've changed... I've revised... Well, also, certain... like, your stance. There's also, like, he was a Nazi. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, like, there's, like, the element of, like, my stance on, on his on his ontology and his metaphysics. But, okay. like, like my stance on Heidegger in Did general... Did you guys have like, Cody out here talking about Heidegger? No, not yet. <laughs> but, like, my stance has been revised, uh, you know, of late reading more of a rent, but, like, I would rather read a rent than Heidegger any day. But, like... You know, the way that my question here, and this is something I got to scoff from John, is the way that, you know, okay, so here, you know, how does, here's a question, how does contemporary philosophy position itself when confronted with such a situation, i.e., you know, the issue of, um, of Nazism and, you know, in modern life? And I put off to the side, just as a, as a side note, like, wasn't this the question posed, um, by the entire Frankfurt School of Thought? Um, and you know, right? Oh, I thought I disagreed. There was not scoffing, and so which led me to the notion of I think think those two words are the same. (laughs) (laughs) Scoffing is when I like. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you went. I'm pretty sure you went. Um, that is one of the, that's one of my modalities. Like, of okay, you're not aware of your own affective registers, but I love a good background. We can never time. be fully aware of our affective okay. registers. That's the point. Um, the, the notion here uh, that I'm trying <laughs> to drive at, Masumi, Masumi, Masumi. Where was I? You've interrupted oh, my train amazing. of thought. I know. Uh, so great. Oh, the Frankfurt School. And so I asked myself, well, was Heidegger even necessarily was was Heidegger even necessary to the exposition here on you know discussing biopolitics in relation to Nazism? Could we have had much more of a detailed conversation with um, you know post war and even, like, current war thinkers, such as, oh gosh, here comes Levinas, but, like, other students that, um, you know, during this period of time had a, you know, the lived experience of Nazism on the inside rather than the out, like, by by inside, I mean the the experience of oppression on the inside rather than the experience of of exacting the oppression, um, which, you know, Martin Heidegger had that opportunity to do. And so, you know, in reading Heidegger, I felt like it was obviously an apologetic way of going about Heidegger's rather reading, reading Esposito. Oh, Esposito reading Heidegger was like an apologetic way of understanding his his relationship with Nazism, um, especially with like I mean, obviously this may have, may or may not be coextensive with you know Heidegger's um, his his Black Notebooks, but you know so this, this is pre Black. This notebooks. is pre yeah. like the so you know with these coming out, I wonder the extent to which we can actually read Heidegger in the same in the same vein. Um, in which, you know, with the extent to which he has an, an avid kind of anti-Semitism, now we read his ontology as being something different. Yeah. Um, and the way that his metaphysics operates can never be fully separated. That notion of being an appearance can never be fully separated from right. his entrenched, um, you know, seemingly hatred for, you know, the Jew. Sure. So, I mean, like, the thing about Heidegger, the, Heidegger in this text that... I find really strange and makes me think that, like, we have to read as an apologetic for Heidegger on some level is the fact that he's so willing to say we must confront biopolitics 
at its worst than the Nazis to get to an affirmative project. Mm -hmm. We must confront Nietzsche at his most Stenato political mm -hmm. to get to something different or mm -hmm. get to an affirmative biopolitics. But I, that I think he excuses Heidegger from doing that. And, you know, he's constantly talking about how Heidegger, Heidegger has too much distance from Nazism. He reverses the question of Nazism. This is the kind of language that Esposito is using right, to talk right. about Heidegger. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a problem, A, given Heidegger's personal history, which mm -hmm. gets, like, one paragraph in this, like, ten-page discussion yeah, of true. Heidegger. And then there's, like, the, the more, most egregious parts to me are talking about, he talks, this is 152, about how Heidegger's relationship to... Uh, the immediate, uh, the immediacy of bios and Nazism that Heidegger has only a quote indirect, only a partial, only a differential connotation with it. Uh, later on, he's talking about how um, Heidegger is quote completely sheltered from the Thanato politics of Nazism, okay. and then he kind of concludes the section on Nazism, Nazism by talking about how it's the excess of distance, is the quote, excess of distance, distance from Heidegger that, that Heidegger has from Nazism that just allowed him to, quote, lose his bearings. Well, you know, and this is the thing. is That's that then infuriating. It seems, yeah, it's infuriating, but it's completely then, then, you know, talk about contradiction, but then it would it would suggest that Heidegger wasn't thinking at all, right? And the whole purpose of the Heideggerian school, right, is that thinking is a process, thinking is a method, thinking is an inner dialogue with the self, mm -hmm. that we can we can pose the question of what is thinking and answer it affirmatively. In that such a way there's there can be thoughtlessness. And if indeed Heidegger was sheltered, if indeed Heidegger was distanced, if indeed Heidegger was not in confrontation with the lived moment then he wasn't thinking when he took well, a step back, right? You always, you know, the Arintian tradition, right, is that we come into the world of appearances, then we exit back out to think. Then if Heidegger was never in the world of appearances in the be to begin with by not even contemplating mm -hmm. Nazism, then he could never go in an inner dialogue with himself and fully, you know, interrogate this, you know, these ideas of, of Nazism to begin with. See, I think this That's is... not thinking. This is where Esposito's, like, abstraction or, like, attachment to the, ab the abstract... Um, is sort of like shooting himself in the foot here, right, right? right? That it's not that like, right? Because what he's in the quote you just read, he's saying like Heidegger's thought is, yeah. uh, you know, sheltered from which like, but in the language gets collapsed as like Heidegger himself is sheltered from. So there's a kind of a way in which I think the distinction mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. Heidegger the person and Heidegger the thought is totally collapsed yeah. here for. Maybe intentionally, I'm not sure, but maybe yeah. that, like when when you do that, what happens is you absolve him, right? And so there's a there's a tension. <laughs> I right? wonder if we can read like Heidegger as just being completely banal, then you know, as being on the one hand kind of a figure. If we think about it through this vein, on some level, like a figure that becomes kind of you know uh, a functionary, a philosophical functionary of a certain kind of way of thinking about life, right? In the and I wouldn't say that he's anything like Eichmann, but you know, I'm just thinking that is there a thoughtlessness in Heidegger that we can attribute to his there's a thoughtlessness in his thinking. And, you know, and how dangerous it is when thoughtlessness enters our own way of thinking, right? Is this this is what happens is that it could be taken up by the most hideous regime in modern history. All right. That was more minutes on Heidegger than we promised. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, so let's kind of move maybe to the last discussion before we get to our new segment into my Tumblr friends. Yeah. Canada. And this is kind of the question of what are we left with at the end. 
And what are we left with? Like, is, is do we get some kind of affirmative biopolitics at the end? And I mean, I would maybe think about it in terms of that, but also in terms of what do we think of the way he's taking up, and I mean, of course, this is the people I want to think about in the Esposito, like, the way he takes up Spinoza and the way he takes up Deleuze. I wish they had taken more time on Spinoza, personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought we were, like, going to get 20 pages of Spinoza. Right, no, that's we what got, I like, did, too. Seven, six um, or seven. We got way more about Heidegger than we did about Spinoza or Deleuze, <laughs> and I was like, okay. Oh, burn, Esposito. I know. Um, I actually thought that the quote that he uses um, when he's talking about um, Deleuze, I think. No. Here on 191. That's Whose quote is this? The healthy organism. Oh. I, I thought it was kind of interesting because this, um, the language is sort of capitalist. The affirmative biopolitical language is about like, um, like realizing its nature, facing risks, accepting the, you know, the potential for catastrophe, right? That That's there's a kind of like mar- weird, like market, uh, language there. I don't know if it's like market logic, but I was kind of it, like, it jumped out at me throughout and I didn't know if that was just, yeah, that's a good point. um, part of it or kind of incidental, but, point. um, I, I wonder like how, how successful we can how how successfully we can articulate a an affirmative biopolitics or or a generative as opposed to a degenerative one that doesn't like slide into production. Mm-hmm. Logic. That's interesting. So then maybe the way to reframe the Benjamin Buck Morris question is how do we make affirmative biopolitics not useful for capitalism? Oh yeah, um, right. Like that's then the question uh-huh. to ask. One of the questions to ask of the affirmative biopolitics that he tries to sketch in mm-hmm, the end. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, so, I mean, full disclosure here, right? Like, I, you know, I have, I have a 65-page dissertation chapter on, like, Marx, Spinoza, and Deleuze. So I think that Spinoza and Deleuze, especially once you add the Marx in, but even if you, you know, you don't think you have to add the Marx in to get here, although obviously, like, you add Marx and you're going to get the critique of capital, mm-hmm. right? But I don't think that, like, the Spinoza, Deleuze, like, ethical, material, embodied, affective vision is like necessarily capitalist. I think that right. it's, I think that it's tendency is to be anti-capitalist. Um, but nonetheless, I think that's a really vital question. Yeah. And yeah. I think I'm just thinking more about how like our, our, the language we have available to explain what or how or what can be generated, generated or affirmed is always kind of linked to our vocabulary uh, that's, about production, right? That it's hard to talk about generation without um, talking about making or producing or, um, you know, I mean, even the way we talk about subjects is still couched in the language of production. So Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not saying that's a sort of like shortcoming. It just kind of struck me for the first time in this chapter that maybe there's something kind of slippery about the language of um, affirmative biopolitics or generation that slides into capitalist language. Right. Well, that we need a new grammar and syntax almost entirely in order to, to in order to make a philosophy as such. So maybe or that's just such one of the risks of going to the heart of this discourse that mm-hmm. like, you know, is the way that like Foucault talks about I mean he's you know, situates liberalism, neoliberalism in terms of biopolitics, mm-hmm. right? That maybe, you know, it's maybe bio, biopolitics is so saturated, not only with Nazism and thanatopolitics, but oh, with capital, capital. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe it's I, I wouldn't say it's unsalvageable, but like it's really yeah, saturated it, with these yeah. things. 
It's a whole regime of signification that's like that has been appropriated to that great extent by capitalism. So, but now I know B, you want to extend. I know you have thoughts on the Frankfurt School and why. Do you want to keep going on the Frankfurt School in terms of like the affirmative biopolitics thing? I had so you know my my mere suggestion was that you know there seemed to be this elision not only in the sense of you know feminist thinkers but this elision in what the Frankfurt School had offered um, post war thought and philosophy. Um, and, you know, my idea was, was only in the sense that, you know, a critical engagement, um, you know, could have, be ha- it could have been had with multiple thinkers out of that school that's not proceduralist and not liberal, so we're not talking about Habermas, but, like, we never talk about that, but, like, the, the notion here never. being, you know, how does one draw an affirmative, was he successful, right? I don't think we've actually answered that question. Was he successful in the project of drawing out However much we we decide like what the measurement of drawing out is yeah. or sketching an affirmative biopolitics, and you know that was my question is that sure. I don't know is that as I read through it I didn't feel convinced or compelled because at the end I wondered the extent to which the state still resides within us within the individual within life as much as the state exists uh, on the exterior right the ways in which we might that we indeed need the state um, is in, on so many of our you know in so many ways you know, conditioned in such a way as that the state is more inclined not to need us, right? So it's like, how is it that, you know, is, is, it, is the affirmative side of biopolitics that we need the state less or that we can abolish the state, that it's non-statist? Or Maybe is that... we place a check on the state for defining life as death or something like that. There's some kind of like democratic or community or... A communal check against the power of the state to to like kill us. That would be my prayer. Would be the, the extent to which we can then no longer relinquish over decisions as such to the state, but rather leave it within the hands of individuals who are tied with communities, which is to say, individuals and their concrete social relations. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because he wants to go to the language of thinking of affirmative biopolitics in terms of communitas, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So, like, obviously, he's trying to get out of the state, right? Oh, but maybe, but I, I think he does. Um, I'm also predisposed to, or I'm oriented to uh, be, in, like, be like, yay, affirmative biopolitics, given kind of my own project and my own theoretical picadillos. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that he more kind of, I think he more or less gets there, actually. Um, you know, and I think that it's partly through his use of Spinoza and his use of Deleuze near the end that he does that. So I, I actually think that in the turn to communitas, in the terms to, in the turn to thinking, if there's going to be a state, right? Because, like, much like much of, you know, kind of Foucault, Deleuze stuff, like, it seems to me that the more explicitly, like, traditionally, quote-unquote, political outcome of this is some kind of um, anarchist-oriented project. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems to me that that is... And anti-status project, but it also, if there, whatever's, whatever's going to be remaining of the state, the key difference that I do think he very effectively traces is the move from thinking about the state in terms of identity, unity, wholeness, Mm -hmm. to thinking about the state in terms of multiplicity, heterogeneity, difference. And see, this is where I think 
if we're de- you know if we're developing an ethics, which is what I took him to be, yes, doing, it's there. Developing an ethics, then the lived moment and experience needs to be concluded here, needs to be introduced here, and that would have been made that would have made for a stronger, I think, a more compelling project and conclusion. Because right now I have an overarching philosophic scheme. Sure. I have words, I have phrases, I have things that sound compelling, but in the end, I find rather flat. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I think it's Richard. I mean, I could, like, read, like, eight quotes about him in Deleuze and Spinoza, but I'll refrain. Yeah. Um, so could I at the, you know, the very end of 194. Yeah. Seem, you know. yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the affirmative biopolitical project is there, but I, th- I think you're right. That, and, and, you know, and he says, like, near the end of the introduction that his interest is not in, like, an explicit political program. Mm-hmm. And he says that that's, like, giving, assuming philosophy does more than philosophy can actually do. Right. Like, as a philosophical project, I think he absolutely gets us to affirmative biopolitics in a less abstract, more lived, more embodied, more material I don't, and I'm with you. Right. Well, I think the part of the problem for me is what something you already said that's missing, which is the engagement with disability studies. Because if the affirmative biopo- biopolitical project is to rewrite the immunity paradigm so that it doesn't authorize the like taking of life that is, uh, you know, um, toxic or whatever, yeah. right? This is why um, this is where Chen sort of right. uh, quoted him, right? That. Um, that if rewriting the immunity paradigm such that uh, there nothing authorizes um, the taking of life that is toxic, right? Such that um, we think about risk as a valuable thing, right? The risking of immunity. Then, like I don't know, you think you need you need more discussion of like what the norms are and the norm of immunity and how it functions and where it's produced and like how to. I don't know what the politics of that are. Absolutely. So on that note, uh, which I think is the perfect note, we are going to head out and have uh, some more music from our new band that's given us music. And you heard them in the last episode, Rocco and Lizzie. Uh, so we're going to have a little Rocco and Lizzie, and then we're going to be back with our brand new segment and our old favorite segment, my Tumblr from Canada. Okay, we're back. It's time for our brand new segment. It may not happen every single episode, but in this episode, and hopefully future episodes, it will. The segment is called, my friends, the B and Emily don't know what the name of it is. Mm-hmm. It's called One or Several Wolves. <gasps> in reference to the Deleuze and Watery Thousand Plateau Plateau about uh, Freud and Wolfman and dreams and stuff. So we're going to do dream analysis on the podcast. So Yay. listeners... I like that name because it's a appropriately nerdy, but it's not It's not quite as cheesy as I thought you were going to go. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm Touch. not surprised you thought I would go cheesy. Um, that's pretty well, cheesy I, I mean, in a I think theoretical I sense. <laughs> not thought. Uh, okay, okay. I hope. Better not. <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, I, I think we should be open to self-revision, as we yeah. would say, so we can have a different name for it if you think of a better corny I, one. I like that. I was just like, I don't know, I thought something sort of provocative, like maybe it would have the word daddy in there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> All right, so there's, send in your name suggestions for the dream analysis segment to alwaysalreadypodcast.gmail.com. No, I like this one. I like this one. All right, so this is, I think we're just going to go totes anonymous on all of our dreams. Okay. Analyses. Perfect. All right, so this is the dream of someone. This is incredible, by the way. <laughs> it's probably my favorite dream I've ever heard anyone talk about, and definitely more favorite than any dream I've had. All right, dream from listener for our first ever one or several wolves. With an apt name, actually. Yeah. I dreamt that I had to defend my dissertation in front of an audience of my peers using a notebook made of werewolves, fur, and vampire bones. Following the defense, Sarah Ahmed had to proctor a last-minute final that I had apparently forgotten to take somewhere in my career, but I needed to shower. I left the auditorium, argued with the groundskeeper what gendered shower room I could use, came back in a silk robe and wrote about male aggression and heteronormativity in pictograph form. Then, as if that wasn't already weird, I had to do battle with an ancient vampire who wanted to steal the iron spike of immortality, which was somehow in my possession, and somehow managed to lose the spike as my ma- as I made my way to Jasbir Puar's castle, which was also a rocket. Sarah Ahmed turned out to be a werewolf, lectures me in wolf form about using fur for dissertation publishing purposes, and then runs off into the distance of Poir's castle is getting ready to launch to the University of Arizona to escape the vampire battles that were waging outside in what appeared to be London and to speak on my behalf for a job interview. So bravo, oh, listener wow. of the Always Already podcast. Um, I'm honored that this is the first dream for one or several wolves. Thoughts. Uh, this is quite easy. Okay. I think. Go for it. <laughs> Obviously, we should we we should probably disclaim that none of us are trained no. psychoanalysts no. or uh, therapists of any kind. But we've all read a little Freud, a little Kant, a little yeah. Deleuze and Guattari, a little Melanie Klein. Oh, so you know, yeah. yeah little young, we can, so... Yeah, we've all read a little Laplanche. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. He's the only one of us that's read a new Laplanche. Okay, well, this person is clearly um, undergoing the process of writing a dissertation. Okay. It's clearly stressful. Yes. Um, This person clearly has dreams of eventually obtaining a job at the University of Arizona and is uh, feeling... Because it's, like, insulated yeah. from the stress of the vampires. Right. Oh, it, no, no, I'm just throwing vampires in. It, Vampire bones Yeah, and here. experiencing sort of, um, you know, uh, projecting future anxiety onto the process of, of uh, searching for a job. Um, and also this person is watching much too much uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer while they're, <laughs> while they're reading Jasper Poir and Sarah Ahmed for the purpose of writing a dissertation. All right. That is, that is my That's pretty great. Professional opinion. Do you want to add more in? Yeah, I think that, that I think that's pretty spot on. I think, like, the idea of a vampire war raging outside and, like, it's being in a huge, you know, uh, metropolis like yeah. London, you know, maybe it's like you got to get away from the city. Werewolves or, of London, right? The werewolves of London, <laughs> vampires. Oh, I'm much more like, literal with this, right? <laughs> with, and blood sucking. Um, like, I'm interested to know like why the dissertation was bound in werewolf fur and vampire bone, um, and then ultimately why Sarah Ahmed would have, then have to be a, va- a, a werewolf. I have, I have right? thoughts on all of this. Yeah. Okay, my guess, my interpretation is that they're bound in these things because the the werewolves for the vampire bones and so on um, 
are, like, both uh, things that, like, are invested with much fear and horror, as the dissertation is, but at the same time, a fascination and, like, an openness for, like, alternative futurities, even if they're, like, destructive. (laughs) Emily's shaking her head. No, I'm still gonna go literal on this. I think (laughs) think what it indicates is that this person is literally at the trying to read a a text, write a dissertation at the literal same moment that this person is watching TV saturated with werewolves and vampires. And and thus, the two things become, become one. Yes. In the brain. You're absolutely right, uh-huh. Emily. But these are not mutually exclusive, uh-huh. right? And this is represent something in the abstract. Remember, <laughs> several wolves. As okay. the wolf man okay. is never just okay. one wolf. Right. The wolf man is several wolves. Right. I have one other thought, actually. Yeah. Uh, my other thought is that it's I mean, obviously Jazz Beardpoor and Sarah Ahmed, it's a, it's amazing because they're both like two of the most brilliant people thinking and writing things today. But also like we could redo the whole like Oedipal Triangle in a very like oh, queer, uh-huh. anti racist reading of the Oedipal Triangle in this dream. Yeah. We don't have to go there, but I think it'd be really interesting Ooh. to think about which like Which one are you trying the- to marry? Which one are you trying to kill? <laughs> That's, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so I don't. I, I'm going to leave that one. You know, and and I, and in the like spirit of several wolves, we should also say that it's possible that the dreamer uh, themselves is like not in the obvious position, right? Be in the triangle. I I was thinking too that the the presence of these you know like affective and queer theorists might indicate like either sources or sort of, like, tenors of the kind of stress that the person is experiencing. So it's, like, maybe a a stress, like, um, maybe it's, like, a queer stress, not queer, stress about being queer, but, like, there's something about the stress itself that, that, like, doesn't fit into the normal sort of narrative about what proper stress is or something like that. Brilliant. I I love this segment. Yeah. It's it's great. And (laughs) clearly everyone should come pay us to provide dream interpretation. I know. It'd be awesome. Um, By pay us, we would listen to our podcast. Yeah. And rate it on iTunes. And rate it on iTunes. And get six of your friends to subscribe. Yes. All right. So that's the end of One or Several Wolves. But we still have... My Tumblr friend from Canada. Woo-hoo! Two questions today, both from the same person, Carter from Halifax, right. um, who found us by searching on iTunes for Deleuze. Oh. So clearly we're doing oh, something right. Yay. All right, our first question from uh, Carter from Halifax. When I make fried rice, how can I stop it from sticking to the bottom of the pan? Oh, Ooh, it's good when it sticks to the bottom of the pan. It gets a little burnt. I'm, a, I'm kind of a fan of a little burned fried rice. Well, we too. like to really, we like to confront danger. <laughs> Head on. There might be like and carcinogens when you burn it, and you know, invite the toxins into. Yeah, it. I never you figured out quite how to do that because I'm I've a always bad, enjoyed it. I'm I a suppose. bad rice cooker, right? And so am I. So I'm like the most horrible person to to ask, I suppose. But like, you know, it's about constantly stirring and paying attention, and then the use of oil, um, and and also egg, right? So in like. I don't know how, like, I cook my fried rice with egg, but you don't necessarily have to. But that helps to prevent some of the, the sticking and burning. It's I like also... to make it with cauliflower. Ooh, Ooh that's, that's great. Too. Yeah. That's really good. I love cauliflower. It's I like so it. That's a good, also that's an important part. very true. My thought, like, you know, I don't... I refuse to answer this question because I'm a woman. Okay, fair enough. Attention good. needs that's to good. always be f- like always served to the rice. Like rice is one of those things where you don't walk away from it. You have to consistently. Oh, I totally walk away from. See, rice. that's where we all fuck up. <laughs> that's where we fuck up, John. Yeah, my, I do the same thing. My other thoughts are that when I like when I cook rice, I usually do it 
because I don't want it to cook too much and be too soggy. So I don't go with like a quite full two to one water to rice ratio. Um, so that's another thought uh, is, you know, do it like if you're going to cook a cup of rice, do like, you know, one and two thirds cup water. That's something. different than making fries. Yeah, I know, but you have to, you have to cook the rice a little bit first. I see, still, I see right? what you're saying. Right. So yeah, that's yeah. my, that's my other thought. Use less water. Yeah. Less water. Less All water. right. Our second question <laughs> from uh, Carter from Halifax. Every so often... Is it about noodles? No. Every so often... You can answer this one, Emily. And uh, one, every so often, one of you will say something like, quote, This theorist slash concept slash understanding of a particular passage lets us have a more productive conversation about X topic, end quote. <laughs> this is hilarious. Usually, no conversation on that topic actually ensues. Oh. It's as if you are laying the gr- in the groundwork for some hypothetical conversation that could take place at a later date. I'm not saying this is a problem. It seems inherent to the format. But my question is this. What does productive mean in this context? What is the hypothetical conversation meant to produce? I have some thoughts. So yes. I'm new to the podcast, but I'm not new to you all and to <laughs> conversations that we have. I think that all of us if I can speak for all of us or next to all of us or mm-hmm. near us, um, are really committed to the idea that when you like bring some things together that haven't been thought through together, it opens new possibilities. So I think productive in this sense is just like, um, like intellectually stimulating, yeah. right? That it's like about potentials and kind of like has that, you know, post-human right. sort of futurity, like, tenor to it, right? That it's about, like, enabling things that are um, otherwise unenabled. And I would also like to say, though, that uh, these, like, hypothetical conversations aren't just hypothetical, right? They're, like, they're suggestions for, like, places for future research or suggestions for... Um, articles will never write. Right, sure. articles will never write. Or, you know, like... Things we open up that we then later like scream at each other about over wine and beer. You know, yeah. it's like, like tonight. It's like tonight. Yeah. <laughs> over ice well, cream. you know, like here's my thing. So here's so my, my feeling is if I can interject, yeah, it's like course. you know the notion of, of having a, a, a. Sorry, I have to shush, shush now, Emily, um, Beverly. I I feel like you know productive tension or what productive means is that potential world disclosure. Right. Of like, of having, we we don't even have to touch base with it, however annoying that might be, but to say that, you know, you, the listeners, um, can engage in these conversations as well. And that if you do have a particular question as, you know, as it pertains to how something is productive is reading X theorist or X concept in relation to another X, Y theorist or Y concept, you know, to submit a question as to like how it does in fact become productive of a certain conversation. Mm-hmm. Because I find, I find productive to be a very useful word in the sense of like what potentialities exist in certain kinds of tension between, and I learned this from, you know, our esteemed co-host, John, is that placing, you know, certain kinds of texts and authors that otherwise would not be seemingly matched yeah. um, is a very productive way of thinking through, you know, potential potential disclosures. Thank okay. you. Can I also say, too, I, it's not, I at least I don't think, in any conversations we've had about what we would do on here, it's not a, a um, an intentional format move, right? right? That's just no. kind of like how all of us think. Yeah. <clears throat> so it comes up kind of organically, right? That we're all looking for like new or different ways to connect things together to yeah. yield new possibilities. So it's a kind of like unconscious, you know, recurring yeah. thing, I no, think. No, I think you're yeah. right. 
Um, that's all brilliant, everything you all just said. And I think there are actually a couple more things to say. Um, and one is just, like, I, I totally agree with you that it's, like, a methodology thing. I mean, my method is to, like, put some things that don't usually go together together. And, like, I think that, uh, I mean, Esposito in Critical Animal Studies, for instance, I think actually makes, like, that's kind of an obvious That'd move really to me. But, yeah. you know, so, like, that's part of it. Part of it is that, like, uh, you know... I would love to record four-hour podcasts, and right. Carter promises that they are always listening when we say no one else is listening anymore, <laughs> but oh, we're not right. sure the audience always wants four-hour podcasts, so it is just part of that lamentation, but, like, to go to the really brilliant levels that you two both went, um, the other kind of couple, like, ideas or thoughts I would go in there are to pick up on what both of you are saying about potentiality and connection, and, like, if we think about it in Deleuzian terms, um, you know, it's about, like, yeah, for me, it's about, Deleuze. like, lines of play. <laughs> really? It's never... This is... That's another topic for another day, my relationship with and against Deleuze. But um, it's about, like, lines of flight to me, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and lines of flight are just, like, they're they're constantly being generated when things interact or when Mm -hmm. things move or in becoming, Mm -hmm. right? So that, like, that's, it's just going to happen in things. Like, if, you know, even if you want to talk about it in the way that Deleuze and Guattari talk about concepts in planes and what is philosophy, Mm -hmm. right? Like, just put those concepts on a plane and interact with one another, and there's constantly going to be lines of flight so that's one of the like theoretical and methodological things behind it for me mm-hmm. and then the other way i go with that kind of question is to eve sedgwick mm-hmm. um she writes about like the merits of thinking and reading uh beside mm-hmm. that's just like a couple pages and i think the introduction to um and i'm forgetting the name full name of the text but I know it's in this room. It's somewhere. not touching feeling, is it? Yeah, and, and touch the introduction Depending, to touching feeling. Yeah. Um, I think, and then the other you know is repair her notion of reparative yes. reading. Such a good, so, like that's kind of where it is to me. So that's, that's like basically I agree with you all, mm-hmm. and those are just to kind of flesh in some of like the theoretical Definitely. motivations for me behind it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. I love that question. Yeah, that was, yeah, a, great that was question. a great question, Carter from Halifax. Send in more questions, Carter from Halifax. They were both. Uh, Send in your dreams. Yes, send in your dreams. Send us your dreams. All send us your dreams. dreams. Send us your dreams. Always already podcast at gmail.com. Our next episode um, is on, we haven't decided exactly from what from the book, but it's going to be a couple chapters from Butler, Zizek's, LeClau's, I always forget the order it's supposed to go in, Contingency, Hegemony, Universality. universality. I forget I the order. Right. Yes. yes, alphabetical order, so that's yeah. good enough. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Alphabetical, the most boring way that I want to order it, that's the way I will do it. Alphabetical. So that'll be the next that's discussion. We're not sure which of the four of us will be a part of it, but we'll figure that out. And uh, until then, send us your dreams, send us advice, questions. Um, yeah. I haven't always already did. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is a creation of B. Altman, Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, and John McMahon. Visit our website, alwaysreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, dreams you'd like us to analyze, or device questions to answer at alwaysreadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, or subscribe to our RSS feed. Thank you to B for his cover of Landslide and to Rocco and Lizzie for Universe de Grasse music in this episode. Until next time, bye!